welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Where is God when times are at their toughest? Is your faith strengthened or does it wither? There will be a moment when God's grace shines through. Will you recognize and embrace it? Teaching team member Caleb Click starts the new series, Ruth, a story of God's steadfast love, with this message entitled, Ruth One, God's steadfast love for prodigals, which covers Ruth, chapter one. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she rose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. Then they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have you yet sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Maobite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. 
This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Father, as we come into your word, Lord, we, we come hungry and we come needy. And we pray that you would feed us. Lord, feed us with the only food that satisfies. Feed us with the food that our heart needs but doesn't always want. And Lord, we pray that where we lack desire, where we lack hunger, that through your spirit, you would grant it to us even now. That you would show us Jesus and all his beauty and his goodness and his kindness and his sufficiency. And you would meet us in the broken places and you would call us to yourself. Work now through my weakness. May you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Last Sunday was Easter morning and families in Nagambo, Sri Lanka, uh, they were doing exactly what most of us were doing on Easter morning. They were scrambling around their houses, trying to get their kids corralled, trying to get them fed, trying to figure out what clothes to put on them. They were thinking about the meals they were gonna be eating together afterwards and what they were going to cook and what supplies they needed. They were thinking about the family and the friends that they were going to see when church ended. And when they arrived at the sanctuary last Sunday morning, they were there to lift their voices in praise to the God who raises the dead. And then, in a moment, everything changed. A man walked into their sanctuary. A man who was captured on a security camera just seconds before patting a child on the head. He walked inside that room where God's people were gathered to worship Jesus and he pushed a button that undid their world. So many people died that that town had to dig an entirely new graveyard just to accommodate the bodies. And camera crews from news agencies all around the world, they gathered on the day of the funeral, Tuesday of this week, and they interviewed these families these families that had suddenly had their worlds turned upside down, these families whose futures had suddenly changed, who had had all these things, these precious gifts, these children, these parents, these grandparents that suddenly were stripped from them. There was a woman who had been inside the sanctuary when the bomb went off who said she was terrified of ever going back inside the church again. There was a young man who had spent 10 hours digging through the debris trying to find the bodies of his nieces and his nephews. There was a grandfather, a man who lost not only his only son, but every single one of his grandchildren in that moment, who sat there and looked at the camera and said, I cannot bear this, I cannot bear this, I cannot bear this. There are people who in one moment in the blink of an eye, suddenly had everything they'd ever hoped for. All the futures that they had dreamed of, all the things they had planned to do, had all of it upended in one single moment. And we hear those stories, and we hear stories like that, and it may be a continent away, but it hits close to home, doesn't it? Because while we may not be experiencing exactly that same thing. We know exactly what it is to live in that world. This fallen, broken place where the things that we love, the things that even seem secure, the things that we are hoping for, the things we plan for, they can fall apart in just a second. Where things don't always go the way we think they're supposed to go and things go in directions that we don't expect. This world 
where we can watch our carefully ordered, perfectly put together lives slowly but surely dissolve away over the course of years. And at other times, like in Sri Lanka, we can watch it crash and crumble in just a second. This world where far too often we find ourselves going, God, where in the world, in the midst of this, of all this brokenness and all this pain, where are you? Are you behind this? Are you the one who's sovereign even over these things? Are you the one who is moving? And if you are, how could you possibly be good if you would let this happen to me? And as those who live in this world, even as believers in Jesus Christ, we find ourselves all too often disappointed and disillusioned and going, God, we don't understand, we don't get it. How could this even be redeemed? What could you possibly be doing here? And what is so gloriously good about the book of Ruth is it speaks to that world. This is not a book about a far off place or a distant land. This is a book about the world that you live in. And it is a book that presents to you a God who even when you are disappointed and disillusioned and everything seems to have gone wrong and everything seems lost, a God you can cling to even when nothing makes sense and all hope seems to be gone. Because here's who the God of Ruth is, the God of the Bible. He's a God who clings to his people in steadfast love, even when they don't cling to him. And you see it in the story of the woman whose family we meet in these opening verses of the book of Ruth. A disappointed, disillusioned woman who has seemingly lost everything. And she's lost it all because of a choice. A choice not made in faith, but a faithless choice. The very first verse of the book of Ruth, the writer immediately orients you to what's going on. He says, in the days when the judges ruled, which tells you a lot of things that you may not realize right off the start, but if you were an ancient Israelite and you heard those words, you knew immediately the setting you were running into. This was a time in the life of God's people where there was deep and profound sin where God's people were running from God over and over and over again. And it's this time when God has delivered his people into the land. He's brought them out of Egypt. He's given them the promised land. He has conquered their enemies. He's given them dominion. And God has said to his people this, hold fast to me. Cling to me, give me your hearts, give me your lives. Where I lead you, there you will go. Believe in my promises, trust in me. And if you do, if you do, I'll bless you. This land I've given you, it will be fruitful. Food will be plentiful. Peace will be what you know, and I will dwell in your very midst. But if, if you don't hold fast, then the land will be barren, and food will be scarce, and war will be common. In my hand, it will not be for you, it will be against you. And if God had stopped there, Israel and us with them, we would have absolutely no hope. But God doesn't stop. God says, and if you fall, when you fall, if you call on my name and you confess your sins, I will forgive your iniquity and I will always save because that's who I am. And when you open the book of the Judges, you find a people who were hearing God, even as he did from the very start, calling, him, calling them to give him their hearts, and over and over and over, they keep 
saying no. And God does exactly what he promises he'll do. His hand come against them to discipline them and when they cry for help, God in his mercy, he delivers. He sends these men called judges who save God's people in their time of need. And this cycle just repeats itself over and over and over again. The sin of God's people getting worse and worse and worse until finally the cycle shifts in this one key piece. The people of God, they sin and they're disciplined, but they stop confessing. They stop calling on the Lord to deliver and then God, because he's more merciful than we could even imagine, God, he saves them anyways. Because that's who he is. And the writer of the book of Ruth, he's telling you in the very first verse exactly what part of that cycle you're in. He says, in the days when the judges ruled, what is happening? There was famine in the land. The land was unfruitful and the food was scarce, which tells you what? Israel is in sin. And not only is Israel in sin, but the family to whom you're introduced in these opening verses, they're in sin too. Because what is their response to God's discipline? Israel has sinned, God is disciplining them because of the famine, which means you're supposed to do what? Cry to him. What does Naomi's family do? It says they went to sojourn in the land of Moab. Now, if you're an Israelite, that's the alarm bells that should be ringing in your head. Because Moab's not just another country. Uh, this is not a just you visiting another church on a Sunday morning or going to hang out at your cousin's house with people that were friendly to you and would support you and care for you. This, this is a nation that God has warned his people about. They're not one of the nations that God has said are to be utterly destroyed, but they are a people that in Deuteronomy 23, God has said they are excluded from the assembly of my people even to the 10th generation, and here's why. From the moment God's people entered the promised land, these are a people who have been hostile to them. They've tried to get their prophets to call down curses on God's people. In Judges chapter three, after God's people are in the land, have conquered the land, the Moabites are the ones who are actively oppressing God's people. This is a nation that is hostile to God and to his purposes, and not only that, but they are also a living, breathing, spiritual danger to the people of God. Already, in the story and in the life of God's people, they've led God's people astray, not to hold fast to him, but instead to go and to chase after other gods. And it's been their women in particular. The alarm bells should be ringing you shouldn't be able to hear anything else because what does Naomi's family do? They not only do not cry to God, but it says they sojourned in Moab and then they remained there. And when Elimelech, the husband of Naomi dies, it says they not only remained, they lived there 10 more years and what do the two sons do? They marry Moabite women. This is a family that just like the rest of Israel in the book of the Judges, they are doing what is right in their own eyes. And they are living, even though their father's name is Elimelech, which means my God is king, they are living as though God is not king and they are. And what always happens, what always happens when you think your way is better than God's, death is what follows. Elimelech, Naomi's husband dies, 
Her two sons follow 10 years later. And Naomi, this Israelite woman, she finds herself not physically dead, but in a situation where she may as well be. Because not only is she an old woman living in a strange land, she is now a woman who in the ancient Near East has lost possession of any support structure she could have possibly had. Her husband's gone, which means she has no one who can financially support her and provide for her because she can't own land. Her sons, who would have been her support system in case of her husband's passing, who were supposed to be her retirement, they're gone too. And not only are they gone, but in the 10 years they've lived in the land, 10 years in which they've gotten married, they have not yet produced any children, which means that's not there either. All Naomi has, this old woman who has moved away from home because she thought she would find life, all she has found is death, and all she has left is two women, Moabite women, women she once thought were her family and now she looks at and all she sees are reminders of her sin and shame. She has one option. She can go home. And she's heard, as verse six tells us, that there's food in the land because as the text says, God has visited his people, which tells you what? That God, who in mercy keeps saving his sinful, disobedient people, he's on the move again. And yet, when Naomi returns, it's not in hope. It's a hopeless return. And it's a hopelessness you see with every single step. They depart to go home, and Ruth and Orpah, these two women who had been married to her sons, they go with her. And Naomi immediately begins to find any reason she can to tell them to turn around, go back, do not come with me. And she starts off trying to do it gently. She says in verses eight to nine, I want the Lord, she prays, Lord, bless these women, deal kindly with them. This word in the text, that's the Hebrew word chesed, which is one you see in your Bibles translated often as steadfast love, compassion, or kindness. It's this love that God has for his people, this love that drives him to pour out blessing even on those who don't deserve it a love that brings flourishing in a place that has been barren, a love that takes those in places that are dead and makes them alive. And Naomi is saying, I want that love to be yours because you have shown that kind of love to me. But notice what is implied in her words. That love, that blessing that is poured out on the undeserving, that mercy of God, it's not with Naomi and it's not where she's going. Go back. And when Ruth and Orpah seem to miss what Naomi is saying, and they persist in going towards Israel, Naomi, she gets blunt. She says, turn back, my daughters, verse 11. Why? Why will you go with me? I'm the Titanic. I'm a sinking ship. There's nothing here for you. There's no hope. There's no future. There's no life. Everything you need, it is back where you came from. Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? 
turn back my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night, right now, and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? She says, look around you. I don't have any sons for you to marry. The ones that you could marry, they are back there because I am old. No one's going to marry me. And even if they did, even if somehow miraculously I conceived a child, are you, women who have already been married, who are already of marriageable age, who are right now in the prime of your life, would you wait the 15 to 20 years it will take for that child to be ready? There's nothing here. This family is dead. This house is burning. Get out now. And here is the ultimate reason she wants them to run. Verse 13, why has all this happened? The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Hear what she's saying. That same hand of the Lord that came against Egypt with plagues when they refused to let God's people go. That same hand of the Lord that wiped out an entire generation of Israelites in the wilderness because of their unbelief. That same hand of the Lord that again and again and again has come against Israel in the book of Judges because of their sin. She goes, that hand, it hasn't just come against the nation, it has come against me. God, he is against me. This is his hand, this is his work. Do not go with me. Do not bind yourself to me because if you do, then God is going to be against you too. Get away. She looks at God. This God of chesed love. This God who offers his mercy to the undeserving and she sees none of that for her. She sees wrath. She sees condemnation. She sees death. She's a woman whose choices have had consequences and those consequences are more than she can bear and she sees no way in which it can be redeemed and she is a woman who is convinced that God is not for her but against her. Orpah hears that and she does what any reasonable person would do. She turns around and after weeping on Naomi's shoulder for a moment, she leaves but not Ruth. Verse 14 says, Ruth clung to her. That word, that may not seem that significant to you. Uh, to us, we hear that and we just think of a physical embrace that someone has grabbed a hold of somebody else, but there's something far more being conveyed with that choice of word. That word clung is a Hebrew word that's been used throughout the Old Testament and every time, almost every time, with a very specific meaning. It's the word that's used in Genesis 2. When God creates man and woman and he designs the institution of marriage and he says in verse 24, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast, cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It's a word that shows up in Deuteronomy 10 and 13 and also in Joshua 23 where it's in reference not to the covenant that is made between a man and a woman in marriage, but between the covenant that is made between God and his people. 
It is a clinging that takes place at the level of the heart where you are intimately connected with that person and their journey becomes your journey, their life, your life. She is looking at this and Naomi knows exactly what this means. Ruth's clinging to her. This is a covenant promise. It's an act of faith. And you know it because look how Naomi responds. In verse 15, she says, see your sister-in-law Orpah. She's gone back to her people and to her gods. Notice this return after your sister-in-law. She says, go back. Your sister-in-law is the smart one. Go back to your gods because look what my God has done to me. Your gods, maybe you have a chance with them, but my God, you can see the destruction that he has wrought. Why would you ever come to him? Go back. Get away. Your gods... They may be unknown, but my God is known and what I know I don't like and you won't like it either. Get away from me. And Ruth, hearing the faithlessness, the unbelief, the brokenness of this woman, Ruth says something that is absolutely remarkable. Ruth doesn't change her mind. And what she did when she clung to Naomi, she now speaks into being with the words of her mouth. Verse 16, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God, where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also. If anything but death parts me from you. Hear what she's saying here. Naomi is saying, go back. Your support structures, they're back in Moab. I can see what you would receive there. Your family is there. Your friends are there. Your community is there. There is food there. There is life there. Go back. The path forward is right there in front of you. You can see it, taste it, touch it, feel it. And Ruth looks at that same situation and she goes, yeah, but I wouldn't have your God. And I would rather be in a place where I have nothing that in the eyes of the world would seem like hope and be among his people as one of his followers than I would go back to the place from where I came. God has taken a neon flashing sign and he is painting the skies and he's calling for Naomi's attention. Because how in the world has this happened? This is the first time you see faith in the book of Ruth and notice who it is. It's not an Israelite. It's not a Limelech. It's not the unfortunately named Malon and Chilion. It's not Naomi. It's Ruth, a Moabite woman who married into a faithless family, a family that spoke of the steadfast love of God but did not actually believe it whose lives had been spent running from him and his ways and his purposes. And yet when she heard of that God from faithless people, the faithful God gave her eyes to see and a heart that hungered and faith to believe. And she is saying to Naomi, there is still life because you're God. 
He is the God of steadfast love. And you'd think, you'd think right there, confronted with this, that Naomi's heart, at least for a moment, would begin to maybe flutter. That maybe there would be this little bit of faith that might come back, that maybe she would go, if God could do this in a Moabite woman, then maybe there's hope even for me, then maybe God could resurrect even this dead life. But what does Naomi do? She does nothing. She hears a woman swear to her that she will go even to death with her and she doesn't even say thank you so much. She's silent. And it is a silence born of a bitter heart. You see it in the verses that follow. Ruth and Naomi, they get to Bethlehem and the women of the town who haven't seen Naomi in 10 years, they recognize her and they come clamoring and they say, are you Naomi, is this you? Are you back, are you home? And Naomi speaks words that reveal what has been going on in her heart this entire time. She says in verse 20, do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty, and notice that name, the Almighty, God Almighty, that's a name, that's a name that God has used in the life of his people before. It's a name he used with Abraham when he promised Abraham that he was gonna give him a child and Sarah was barren and Abraham looked around and said, there's no hope here. There's no possibility of us having a child. My wife is old, I am old, we are infertile. And God said, no, it's going to happen because God Almighty has spoken this to you. It's what God uses to identify himself as the God who can take even dead, broken people and he can breathe life back into them. He can do what is not humanly possible because he's not human, he's God. But notice how Naomi uses that name. For the Almighty, who's dealt so kindly with others, he has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full. I had everything I wanted. I was happy. I had a family. I had a future. And notice what she says next. And the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty, there's that name again, has brought calamity upon me. She's saying, I was happy. Everything was good. Everything was the way it was supposed to be. And then God, he ruined it. He destroyed my life. He has brought not goodness, not blessing. He has brought pain. Call me bitter. And you realize right here, this woman she may be physically home, but she is spiritually very far away because she is looking at these circumstances and she is looking what has taken place in her life and what she feels in her heart. It is not love for God. It's not even indifference to God. She hates him. And notice what's missing in this. She has not yet once mentioned the fact that all this has happened because of what? Her choices. And not only that, but what else is missing? She does not mention Ruth. She can't even see her. This is a woman whose heart is so bitter she cannot see the gift of God staring her in the face. She hates God. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe, 
Maybe those aren't words that you have the guts to speak out loud, but maybe, maybe those are words you've spoken in your heart. Because you look at your life and you say, I was full once, or at least I felt like it. I had the things I needed in my life. I had what I wanted. My future seemed set. I had plans, I had dreams, and then God took it all away. And now I'm empty. And whenever I hear people talk about the goodness of God, the grace of God, I just find myself wondering why he never showed it to me. And in your heart, you don't love him. You're not even indifferent to him. You hate him. If that's you, do not miss what God is doing in the book of Ruth. Naomi hates God. But he does not hate her. And he doesn't hate you. Because that steadfast love, that steadfast love that she has spoken of but she doesn't believe, it's a steadfast love that has been chasing her down the entire time. And the God she thinks is against her, he is revealing himself to be a God who is more for her than she could ever imagine. A loving God who in steadfast love has grabbed hold of her life already, she just doesn't see it yet. Because what happens in the book of Ruth? It's not just Ruth who has clung to Naomi, is it? It's God. Because what does God do through this Moabite woman, this unlikely person that should never have been a part of the people of God, yet somehow miraculously is. This one who willingly left behind her country and her place to enter into another country with another people. This one who left behind everything that was safe to suffer with a disobedient, faithless, hopeless, bitter woman. What does God do? He pours out blessing on someone who doesn't deserve it. Even Naomi. And this woman who thinks that God's hand has been against her, she discovers that that God, he has actually been bringing her towards a fullness beyond anything she ever had before. And when this book ends, she doesn't just have a family again. She doesn't just have children again. For the very first time, she has God. And there is fullness there, the likes of which she never could have conceived. And here is what should make your heart sing, because it makes mine sing. That same God who grabbed hold of her, he has also grabbed hold of you, also through Ruth, because who comes through that woman's line? It's not just King David. It's a king unlike any other. A king who, like Ruth, a king who, like Ruth, would leave behind his own country to enter into one that was not his own a king who would willingly leave behind his own people to enter into the lives of a faithless, hopeless, and bitter people. The eternal son of God who dwelt before the throne of his father in heaven, who descended and entered into space and time and history and took on human flesh who is so identified with you in that manner because he wants to be able to say to you what Ruth said to Naomi, 
Where you go, I will go. Where you dwell, I will dwell. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And notice this, where you die, I will die also. A king who so identifies with his people that he enters into the very death that their sin deserves. Not so that he could wallow around in our misery with us, but so that he could pull us out into his resurrection life and give us a fullness, the likes of which we never could have known before. Because we've been restored to the God who made us and made us for himself. And not only that, but these lives that are so perishable that in a second can be taken away, we would share in a life that is not perishable, but imperishable a life that doesn't last for a moment, but a life that is eternal. And all of that, it comes in only one manner, and that is through this king, Jesus himself. The apostle Paul saw it. In Ephesians 5, Paul, he quotes those same verses I quoted earlier from Genesis 2. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast, cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then Paul adds this extra little phrase. This is a profound mystery but I tell you it refers to what? Christ and the church. This is a God who in Jesus clings to faithless, hopeless, bitter people and does it not to condemn them, but to save. When I was in high school, there was a movie that was really popular with my friends, this M. Night Shyamalan movie called Signs. And if you remember this film, it was a movie that on the surface was about an alien invasion. But when you watched it more closely, you realized it was actually a movie about faith. The main character was a man played by Mel Gibson, who was a pastor, who had seen his wife die in a tragic accident. And in the aftermath of her death, he found that that faith that had so sustained him before, it wasn't there anymore. Because everything seemed random. Nothing seemed to have meaning. All of it seemed meaningless. Everything was painful and broken and there seemed to be no hope of redemption. But as the movie progresses, this pastor suddenly begins to realize that the things that seemed so random, they really were anything but. The things that seemed meaningless, they were actually meaningful. And at every single point, while well, he thought he had been screaming out into a dead void, he had actually been calling to a sovereign hand of love who had been working behind the scenes the whole time. And this man who lost his faith, his faith is restored. And when you watch the movie a second time, you realize that there were all these signs in the film that meant one thing the first time you watched it, but then meant something else the second and my favorite was one you see in the very opening scene of the movie. When Mel Gibson gets out of bed and walks across the hall to go into his bathroom to get ready for the day, you catch a glimpse of the wall of his hallway. And burned into the wallpaper by the sun is the outline of a place where a cross used to hang. And before you know anything about this man, before you even know he's a pastor and that he's lost his faith, you already have this hint, this sign that here is someone who once had faith, but now he's left it. Here is something that was here, but now it is gone. But when you watch the movie a second time, you realize that that sign, it actually meant something else too. Because while he had let go of his God, his God had not let go of him. 
and his sign remained. He clung. That's the God of Ruth. This is a God who is people who live in a disappointed and disillusioned world. This is a God you can cling to even when things don't seem to make any sense, even when it feels like there is no hope because this is a God. This is a God who clings to faithless, hopeless, bitter people in steadfast love, even when they don't cling to him. You may be sitting here this morning and you may be feeling what Naomi did at this moment. You hate God and you don't want anything to do with him. Well, I've got news for you. He wants something to do with you. And he sees you and he knows you. And you may not know it, but he may have grabbed hold of you already. And you may be like Ruth, where you're about to find out that something you could never have imagined is about to take place. The God of Ruth, this God who takes hold of strange sheep, this God who clings to broken, rebellious people, he's a God who invites our faith to come like Ruth and just say, all I have is yours because you are the one. You are the one who gives hope to the hopeless. You are the one who shows mercy to those who do not deserve mercy. And all of this we have seen in full in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the God of Ruth. And that's a God worth clinging to with everything that we possess because he is the one who has clung to us in Christ. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we're so grateful this morning that we have a God of steadfast love and mercy. We have a God who clings to broken people and a God who gives hope when it seems as though there is no hope. And you are a God who in love, loved us when we didn't love you. And Lord, that is, we don't have any hope apart from that. And we pray, Lord, that even at this moment, you would take our own hearts and you would awaken them to the heights and the depths and the links and the wits of the love you have shown us in Jesus. That Lord, where our hearts are dead, you would speak life. Where they are straying, you would bring them home. Where they are wandering, Lord, you would restore them to your ways and your path. And Lord, in every way, you would take these empty lives of ours, these lives that maybe to us feel as though they've been stripped bare by a God who hates us. And we pray instead that you would open our eyes up to the fullness of life we have received in Christ so that we would be bitter no more, but instead grateful and worship the one, worship the one who clung to us even when we did not cling to him. We pray all this in the precious name of Jesus, our savior, amen been listening to the Perimeter Church podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.